Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, good morning, VJ. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. So our special guest today is Micah Hales. She's the author of the book, Hal, a middle school reader that Crooked's uh, Review calls both poignant and hopeful, a beautiful calibrated coming-of-age tale that deals thoroughly with grief and recovery. Um, welcome, Micah. Good morning. Welcome. Good Thank morning. You. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. So um, before we get to Hal, I want to talk a little bit about education, a little bit about your work as a history teacher and, and teaching history. And, you know, today is Columbus Day or Indigenous People Day. Uh, so I know a lot of discussion around the uh, changing views on history. I thought maybe we'll start off with just getting your impressions of how and and uh, and how history is being kind of looked at critically and how uh, different aspects of uh, Columbus Day or, or and and how different aspects of these kinds of traditions have been upended and, and perhaps rightfully so. Uh, what is your what is your take on these kinds of uh, things? Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, I, as you mentioned, have been teaching um, humanities. So it's history and English arts uh, combined um, in a middle school now for five years. Um, and it happens to be that one of the social studies state, you know, New York State curriculum uh, um, guidelines for fifth grade is that you teach about Columbus um, arriving in, you know, the West Indies and the effect that it had on the people there. And I have had the privilege of, and also just the amazing experience of watching how this has been taught really shift, particularly in the last five years, um, where, you know, although these ideas and this movement has obviously been gathering strength for hundreds of years almost, especially in the last 25 to 50 years and plus, um, you know, there have been people of underrepresented cultures and backgrounds such as the Taino and other indigenous people of, you know, Central and North and South America, who've been really pushing back towards this idea of celebrating the um, Columbus or, you know, the figures who, who came in from Europe and, you know, mass murdered um, long existing cultures that were here. Um, And so it's been very exciting and heartening in the last five years in particular to watch this shift where we're now sort of publicly referring to Columbus Day as Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, We see sort of very visible reminders of where the emphasis um, of our attention should be, whether it's national monuments or local monuments within without the city. Um, But in my own classroom, I've um, it's just been amazing. I've had families of um, descendants of Taino who were the indigenous people living on, you know, uh, the island that is now Haiti and Dominican Republic uh, when Columbus and his crew initially landed. And mm. they've come into my classroom and talked to my students. And um, they're also just amazing demonstrations all over the city and really celebrations all over the city all the time year round, but especially this weekend. Um, And so, yeah, to answer your question quickly, I would just say, I think that the the shift of paying attention 
to the untold stories um, or the stories that have been told for generations but don't get um, maybe the textbook attention or the, uh, you know, the sort of dominant culture attention, um, that's starting to shift. And I find that really exciting, especially for my students who are learning everything for the first time. So when you learn something for the first time in a different way, it can impact, you know, it truly can impact the future and the way the kids see the world and make their decisions. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like uh, the ways in which education is viewed is so critical. Like we need to be able to think about, um, you know, sometimes I see memes or I see uh, ideas floating around that education is not teaching people to think critically, that it's actually indoctrinating them into the viewpoint of the system, that we can't break free from the system with by, I mean, definitely at that level, you know, at certain levels, people feel like, oh, you know, you're only being pushed into the system. But I think what we need to understand is that at young age, at young ages, um, they're equipping students with the ability to think critically so that then they can make decisions on their own and they can kind of uh, look at the facts and look at the information that's being given to them and, and quickly analyze them and how that develops and how, you know, um, you get exposure to different kinds of thinking and different kinds of uh, perspectives that are not being, not textbook based, not just, you know, getting one narrative, but getting uh, multiple narratives. You know, I think that when we think about cr thinking critically, um, how that's impacted you in your own education, maybe we can speak a little bit about uh, how your education has kind of helped you to develop to the point and some some landmarks, some landmark experiences in your own uh, education growing up. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I've thought a lot about this as a teacher now, um, my own education growing up. Um, I happened to move around a lot. My parents moved around a lot for various different reasons when I was growing up. And so I went to, I don't know, eight, at least eight different schools before college. Um, and I think that in some ways that freed me from, you know, sort of one system or one point of view, because I wasn't in one school building that, you know, subscribed to one set of textbooks from kindergarten to eighth grade. Uh, and in a way that was, you know, very, it kind of, broke up my education in certain ways you know i might skip something that wasn't taught in second grade and had to pick up on it in third and i know my spelling was very dodgy for a while um but i think in other ways it really helped understand that there were you know you know even just seeing different uh publishers for different textbooks um, or going to a school that didn't use textbooks used more primary resources and then just shifting it up um, I had a very disjointed education in that way. Um, and I think it worked to my advantage, um, just understanding that there wasn't like one one absolute truth, you know, one book that, you know, held all of the secrets to history. Um, and uh, I think it also helped me start over many times um, socially and also just with teachers. So I, I think I gained a kind of, confidence um, when going to a new school almost every year or every other year um, where I just kind of had to be there. I had to be present. I had to introduce myself to everyone. Um, and so that helped me have voice in the classroom, I think, in a way that it might not have if I stayed in one place for nine years and sort of, you know, 
kids develop ideas of who other kids are and then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you know some kids become quiet and some kids become the outspoken one and I sort of had every year to reinvent myself as a as a student Mm. and I think in a lot of ways that helped me be more receptive to the idea that there's a lot of different ways that things are taught Um, Mm. if that makes sense yeah totally totally um and and then I went to um, a really amazing high school. Um, I had I was lucky to go to a, a boarding school in Massachusetts, um, and it sort of blew my mind in a lot of ways and opened up um, like this idea of like real critical thinking and you know seeking the truth for yourself and understanding that you know you. You have to question everything that you read, um, not just to be a contrarian, but it's it's your active part as the as the reader to do that. It's your that's your role is not just to receive, but to receive and then question and then possibly read more to answer those questions. Mm. Can you remember, Mike, what was the, or how do you get now that you're a teacher, how can subjects like the humanities be used to encourage that kind of, I guess I think of it as independent thinking, you know, in a polarized time where we're kind of in our own echo chambers and people unquestionably accept what they're being told. Um, how do you encourage, how, how do these subjects and the techniques in school help people break out of that kind of, uh, I don't know, lemming-like uh, following of these uh, colorful stories we're all being told all the time? Well, I think, you know, when, when, when you're talking to 10-year-olds <clears throat> who are turning 11, their brain is in a different, you know, stage of development from ours. And part of what their brain is telling them to do is to follow everyone. So it's even more challenging, um, mm. I think, also when you're talking to young people who um, are looking for the way to be accepted, you know, ways to be accepted socially among their peers. Um, and yet they are also looking for the ways that make them stand out and make them special. Um, and so I think if you can tap into, um, this idea that, you know, your brain is truly what makes you unique and what makes you special, um, and the way that you nourish your brain and develop your own ideas, um, I think that, you know, even 10 year olds can really begin to understand that um, on sort of a deeper level. And then they begin to sort of crave this this quest for knowledge, whether it's about, you know, soccer or politics. Um, and then I think also um, this idea that I always return to with my students, whether it's a discussion in class or uh, um, an essay that they're writing, is that your idea is only as strong as your evidence that you mm. use to support it. And so um, we come back again and again all year long to this idea of needing to support your ideas with evidence. Um, and I think just that alone, that idea alone, if that can be embedded in the kids and they can sort of internalize that somehow, I think that's a very powerful thing because it does seem like we are accepting opinions as truth um, more and more. Yeah, and, and it seems like um, 
we have distinguished the levels of facts, opinions, knowledge, wisdom, you know, all these different levels of which we attain, you know, just being able to use evidence is just having facts. And even that bare level, we seem to be struggling as society to be like, oh, there's alternative facts, supposedly. And this kind of narrative of, well, my facts, uh, even in the vice presidential debate, he was like, oh, you're tired, your opinions are tied to your facts. But I mean, that seems to be not the um, current fandango we seem to be getting into. It seems to be like, oh, opinions and facts are becoming very much melded. And, and in this day and age, we seem to be even more uh, imperative for us to uh, distinguish between opinions and facts and, and how to uh, attain, uh, and you said knowledge is power, but... Uh, you know, how do we even attain to the point of knowledge when we're quibbling over opinions and facts, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I also really encourage my students to go to multiple sources. Yeah. Um, and that's something as an adult I do as well, even though sometimes it's painful. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I, I do think that that's part of our job to to make sure as adults um you know critical thinkers as adults it's part of our job <clears throat> to try to gather um not just as many facts as possible but also points of view yeah yeah so why don't we start to uh blend into the arts uh and how your journey brought you to the arts brought you into reflecting on writing uh your stories the coming age story how uh, why don't we start to blend a little bit into that and how um, you were able to, how your education brought you to that point that you were like, oh, let me uh, write a book and let me kind of talk to a little bit more directly to students um, at that age and how you developed the middle school age as being the target audience. Of course, you work with that age, but, you know, tell us a little bit more about that journey. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, <clears throat> I've always, always been somebody who writes. Um, since I was a little kid, I have always had a journal and I have shelves in my closet of my journals. Um, back to when, you know, sort of when it was pretty difficult for me to physically write, um, you know, just because I was so young. Um, so that has been just a compulsion that I've always had um, was to record, record, record. Um, and, and mostly just the complete banal, you know, just what did I, what happened that day? Um, you know, uh, and I, I don't know where exactly that came from because it started, you know, it's like, why is a kid interested in horses? Um, why is another kid interested in firemen? Um, I was just obsessed with writing and journals. Um, and so that became sort of a daily or, you know, even as a kid, like, every two days, every three days habit um, of mine where I would just sit down and I would write for a long time. Um, and I, it's always been very separate in my mind from fiction because that was just very basic recording of facts. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the facts as I saw them about my life. Um, and so I sometimes go back to some of these old journals and they are just boring as can be. Um, but fascinating in other ways, because it was from the point of view of a nine-year-old or the point of view of a 16-year-old or, you know, 21-year-old. Uh, and, you know, with the retrospect, it's just, it is actually pretty fascinating um, to see what I thought was going on. Um, but then at the same time, I also became interested in telling stories. 
Um, and I even remember kind of the very first story that I wrote. Um, I was, uh, my mother's a writer and I was in her office. She had a, a small office in part of the apartment where we lived. And that's where she had her old, old uh, typewriter, electronic typewriter that had a printer. And I had a little desk that I set up next to my mom's and I was allowed to sit there as long as I was very quiet and I did my own thing, um, which I usually did. And one day she let me sit up on her lap and she typed out a story that I dictated to her on her really old electronic typewriter. And then she printed it out for me. And I remember, I must have been five, maybe, maybe five, possibly four. Um, I remember the sound of her old printer, which I think actually like thumped each key possibly, I'm not sure actually the kind of technology it was, but the sound that it made, I'll never forget that sound. Um, and just this idea that I had made a story that someone else could now read because it was typed. Um, it was just this, I don't know, something bloomed inside of me. Um, and I think I've been telling stories ever since then in school and, you know, in high school and in college. I went to NYU. Um, I was an English major and took every creative writing class I could um, and have just always been telling stories. And there, there's this uh, sort of blend between the practice of this journaling, which is sort of capturing what's actually happening or how I believe things are actually happening and then somewhere from there always spins these ideas for short stories or plays or poems or novels, um, which are completely fiction, um, but somehow they're, they're connected in some sort of web of truth in my mind. Uh, it's more the meaning or, or some idea that I feel is, is, feels so relevant or important to me that I need to create a fictitious situation to describe it and explain it and yeah. express it. It seems also like um, when we talk about the, from our previous conversation at the beginning of this conversation, it seems also like uh, the canon, there's the canon, literary canon that many people have been kind of listening to and, and reading over the course of the, you know, in human history. And uh, we have this literary canon that um, is now being questioned, now being kind of looking towards avenues for telling different stories and telling unique stories and diverse perspectives and, 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 and when we think about storytelling and we think about the framework of understanding upon which we tell the story, it seems like sometimes we think about, um, you know, stories as being like, oh, it's obvious that there's, there's a structure to the story. Of course, there is structure to story, but there's also where the story is coming from is just as important. And I want to get your opinion on like the literature you've read over the years and how that influenced you and, and where you think uh, literature for children is going as far as... Um, opening up the playing field from, you know, the kind of Western canon to, uh, and what are the benefits of diverse perspectives and, and what do you think, what are you seeing in kids reading from, what are they reading and, and how are they getting that, that food they need? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I definitely think there's, again, in the last five years, there's been a huge um, push. And again, like I said before, these are ideas um, and that have been growing in strength with power for, for decades. Um, but it, it does feel like there have been a lot of strong and important ideas that are coming to head. 
Um, and this idea of, you know, hashtag, you know, we need diverse books, right? Yeah. Um, just this idea that sort of explodes on Twitter and across the, you know, the, the blogosphere um, and social media, just, you know, the absolute importance and <clears throat> dire need for diverse representation of characters, um, especially for children's literature, um, has just come to prominence with, uh, you know, the, the basically, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase, you know, predominantly white publishing world. Um, most editors in chiefs, most editors, most uh, literary agents, you know, are white. Um, or, you know, were, uh, you know, white, yeah. it's becoming more diverse. Um, but I think that there has been, you know, a rallying cry and, and that the industry is starting, has been reacting, but the reaction is being pushed forward um, much faster. And um, I think that it ultimately benefits the readers like six million fold. Um, and for every kid, you know, Jason Reynolds, who's now our national, uh, book ambassador for young children, um, who's, you know, if you haven't read any of his books, um, and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not 10, uh, or 15, you need to go out and buy some and read them. Um, you know, he's, he's an, an amazing example of an author who, um, you know, five years ago, I think, you know, five or six years ago had self-published his own first book and has just rocketed to an amazing status of, of, you know, kids reading thousands of his, you know, thousands of hundreds of thousands of copies of his books being sold and kids reading him. And, you know, he's this amazing young African-American man who lives in Brooklyn. Um, and he is now the face of, you know, young kids lit. And that's what, is I think really powerful about these past few years and a transition. Um, Can you repeat the uh, name? Yeah, his name is Jason Reynolds. Jason Reynolds, okay. And his last name is uh, spelled R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S. Um, I, I had the pleasure and the honor of uh, meeting him at a book signing. Um, let's see, this probably would have been six or seven years ago uh, and uh, I was in the middle of writing a, a book. And so we went out for coffee and just talked about writing in books and um, just at a local coffee shop in Bed-Stuy. And, um, you know, I, I had no idea what was, well, neither of us, he had no idea. I had no idea what was about to happen to his career, um, which was, you know, rocket, rocket ship to the moon. Um, but he just exudes this passion for his writing and for his craft and you know every story that he writes just it like it does what it needs to do for every kid it just pulls you right in it makes you laugh it makes you cry um and it has it has something really important to say to kids um and yeah so i think I think that this push towards more diverse books and diverse representation of characters and more diverse authors um, is vital because kids need to see themselves in books. Um, and, you know, kids 
let's say, you know, even a white child growing up in an all white school needs to see and feel compassion and love for a character who doesn't look like them. So it's it's this twofold coin, right? Kids need to see themselves represented in books and then kids need to see kids that are not themselves represented you know in depth in books um so can, can you do you have any um ex what we having uh being in front of kids and, and sharing these sorts of things with students how do they react i i think you know it's sort of like and i come from the theater world where we talk a lot about diversity in theater and there are so many uh, multipliers that happen when you have a play by a non-white actor, uh, writer performed by non-white actors and how the audience of every color responds to that play. How do kids actually respond in your experience when they see um, themselves represented or someone else represented in the books that they're reading? Can you, can you, have you had experience of kids responding one way or the other to this uh, push for diversity in what they're reading? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends a lot on the own child's background themselves. Um, but I, I really feel like everyone wins. Um, I think, you know, students of mine who are black and brown, when they see themselves, you know, represented. And, you know, to be honest, I, I in my classroom and in our school where I, I teach, you know, I push for that to be the majority is, you know, not just for there to be equality, but actually the majority um, for my the literature that I choose for my kids, whether it's a short book or a longer book, um, trying to sort of push against what they have ex probably experienced, regardless of their background for the first, you know, 10 years of their life, which is, you know, the predominant white culture. Um, so trying to, to, to sort of flip that on the head, right? So um, I find that most students, you know, really everyone wins. You know, um, my students who are black and brown feel, you know, just proud and happy and really connected. Um, and then I think students who are, you know, are white students, um, I don't know. I think that they're just swept into an amazing story with a, you know, with a really complex character. Um, I, you know, I happen to teach in Brooklyn in a, in a very diverse school. So it, it might be different if I were to teach somewhere else in the country um, with less diversity. Um, but I find that in my own classroom, you know, having as much diverse representation of, of characters in the books that we read, you know, really everyone wins. So absolutely, I was just we are, we all want to push for diversity, and I and I theoretically I can see where it, it, the kids relate to it and improves their sense of self and, and belonging of whatever race they may be. Um, but it's nice to hear that sort of playing out that way in your yeah. experience. Uh, there's a lot of um, kind of chatter on what I perceive as like uh, on internet or, or the media that there's some kind of backlash, but I don't, I, I think that the problem for me is the conflation of um, the word white, you know, saying what it's a white thing and, 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 and the kind of ideas of the patriarchy, the ideas of the kind of um, capitalistic society and the conflation of these kinds of ideas together with a race, with a Caucasian, you know, saying, saying it's like, it's kind of problematic. I know it's kind of lack of a better word that we just can't seem to grappling with kind of where, 
where to settle on. But when we think about like um, the Eurocentric ideas or the ideas of that predominantly from the Western canon, uh, kind of it's important to go in with surgical lens to kind of see like, well, what is it exactly that's problematic? It's not necessarily white characters or, or having this Caucasian uh, vision, but rather, you know, you can have a, a story set in a white suburb or, or anything like that and still have it be um, kind of questioning or interrogating the kind of, the kind of um, uh, system or the system of thought that has been predominantly um, per perpetrating, uh, permeating, and how it's been breaking down over the years, how there's been a problem with uh, the kind of patriarchal, you know, the kind of capitalistic drive towards pushing people towards, um, you know, the questioning the American dream, questioning what's the, that we're not, the, you know, all these questions about thinking, thinking critically about um, the society and sociological roles. Um, so it kind of breaking it down is important because that kind of helps people to um, question and, and to uh, break, find new pathways in that. And perhaps some of it has to do with their background. Some of it has to do with the, where they're coming from socioeconomically, all these kinds of things. There's so many different topics that it's hard to understand or digest where exactly the problem lies. Yeah. On the surface, of course, is diversity. But deeper down, it seems to be perspective, I think. What are your thoughts on the kind of that surgical removal of, you know, because I think the backlash we're seeing in society uh, is that the conflation of these ideas with race, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think this just, you know, as you were talking, it made me think about um, the book A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, written for the age group that I teach um, by Madeline Langle. And I hope you've read it, but it might have been, yeah. you know, 20 or 30 years ago now. Um, I, I read it almost every two or four years, depending, uh, reread it. And I think that might be a good example of a book where um, when it was originally written, right, the, the main, all of the main characters uh, were white characters mm. um, or are. Um, but it has this amazing, and I'm just speaking about the first book because um, there are more that come after it, but it has this amazing push where the heroine of the story is, you know, she is questioning everything around her and she is struggling um, to find what is, you know, truth and, and goodness. And she's battling a very, you know, true external scientific, you know, sci-fi type um, villain um, but also she's sort of battling inside herself. Um, and when they remade this movie, right, it was these ideas were so universal and just so beyond what we might, you know, the fact that she was white, you know, when they remade the movie, they cast that main character, you know, as a, as a young African, with a young African-American um, actress. And so I think that would be a good, possibly, an, you know, an example of, of a text that just because the main character happened to be written as white, you know, 60 years ago or 50 years ago, uh, the ideas that this book is presenting to young people are so important. Um, it can, you know, it really can transcend who is playing the role of that main character of Meg. Mm. Um, 
And I think that, right, if we took a scalpel and just uh, cut that book out of, you know, took it off our bookshelves and took it out of, you know, teaching it with children just for the, you know, for the plain purpose of the fact that when it was written, um, the characters are not necessarily diverse, we would be losing something. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Well, it's we kind of like where to center yeah. things, right? Yeah. I mean, we 60 years ago when that book was written, we were a vastly white majority country. And um, the, as that proportion of the population has changed, um, the whole idea that white is normal, white is the sort of frame of reference of all of our experience has to also change. Um, and when all of the representation in the media and stories and popular culture is white, it, it, it becomes you know, very, very difficult for another voice to arise or, or uh, becomes ex not it, it becomes not reflective but exclusionary and so the um, as we recenter to a multi-ethnic society with with proportional representation of everybody together I think what you were talking about earlier about everybody gains through better representation because it's actually closer to reality and it helps people learn how to experience life together in a multi multicultural society, which is still one of humans' greatest challenges. There have been very, very few long-term successful multicultural societies, and that's the excitement of the American adventure right now, I think, is that we're uh, trying to continue something that uh, is very, very rare in the world. Yeah, even in India, where there's so many different cultures and religions and perspectives and ideas, uh, they're becoming more reactionary. They're becoming more Hindu nationalist. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the Modi and all of them are starting to say, no, we're a Hindu country, you know, and that's kind of problematic. I mean, I'm not so versed in their internal politics, but I know that uh, there's been a pushback against uh, diversity even in thought, even in their uh, country where there's is a huge um, billion people, something like that, you know, and there's so mm -hmm. many different, uh, and, each, and each village and each area has, different languages and different uh there's 23 languages and there's so many different perspectives uh so america uh as well is starting to uh push back against uh the idea that uh not, not so much uh cultural but uh ideological differences are something to be um you know uh you know ideological conflict is something that is uh is problematic but i think that uh ideological conflict is what uh, is what fuels the American dream that we are we should be we should be uh, encouraging ideological discussion rather than conflict we should be uh, dialogue you know absolutely yeah so uh, now we're starting to uh, I want to get you a chance to talk a little bit more about how uh, and tell us a little bit about what that book is coming from and 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 tell us a little bit of the plot and the story and then we can uh, allow you to read a, a section from it, yeah? Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, um, Howl was a book that I published last, uh, last spring. Um, and it's a middle grade novel for kids, you know, again, in this sort of 10 to 14 age group. So think, you know, uh, closer to Harry Potter than to the Hunger Games. Um, Cause I think for some people, middle grade is sort of a, a, a fuzzy genre and they kind of clump it with YA or young adult. Um, but there is a pretty big 
difference. There's a jump from middle grade to YA. You, the very, the simplest way you could think about it is, you know, YA has kissing and middle grade doesn't. Um, <laughs> that's, that's kind of like a simple way to think about it. Um, but I, you know, I, I teach this, this grade uh, or this, this age group. And I think that there is something so special about kids who are sort of 10 turning 11, um, where they have this amazing world view uh, where they still have, I, you know, they still have one foot in being a young kid and they can remember things about their childhood that honestly they won't be able to remember in about five years um, about really what it feels like to be a little kid in the world. Um, and then they have this other foot in, you know, I guess you would call it the tween or the teen world where they're really becoming much more aware of how things work. Um, and it's these, this two or three years where kids are, it's just sort of like this, this magical place um, where they're becoming much more aware of who they are. Um, and I find that they're so receptive and hungry for books and reading and ideas. And if it's not books and reading, then it's just talking. Um, and anyway, um, so this, this age uh, has inspired me a lot. Um, I've written for adults in the past. Um, I wrote a play that was, short play that was produced in Los Angeles um, called The Whippoorwill. And um, that was for adults and it was, um, put on in this a theater in Venice, Venice, California, um, called the Electric Lodge Theater. It was an amazing experience. Um, I wrote the play after um, sort of in honor and to deal with the emotions of uh, a close friend who died very suddenly in a car accident. Um, and uh, that was an amazing experience. I've had you know poetry for adults published as well. Um, but it was really when I turned to thinking about writing for, for kids, um, where I feel like I've been able to have the most honesty in what I am writing, um, because the, the idea that, um, uh, needing to really get it right for kids. Like kids have so many other things they can do besides read your book. <laughs> You know, and it may even just include like staring at the wall uh -huh. um, that like it really has to grab them and it really has to be worth their time. Um, and that, meaning that it just they have to enjoy it. Right. Kids need to enjoy what they're doing. They don't need to enjoy what they're doing. They also need to do the dishes. But, you know, if it's going to be something that takes, you know, eight years of their sorry, eight hours of their life. Um, it needs to be worth it. And um, I, over the years of teaching, there have been certain things, um, certain topics that are hard to get to in the, the classroom setting. And so that sort of the, was the seed of how some of my stories and then ultimately Howl came around. Um, I saw the need for certain conversations and the inability for them to really happen honestly um, in, in a classroom setting or in, you know, in a setting uh, in a school building. And so being able to write them into a story um, 
felt so important and and for me just gratifying. I've had so many kids tell me that they've read my book and and then and then we have a conversation based on that that is so different than how it would ever be if um you know if I were their teacher. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh how I started writing um let's see uh in 2015 and I wrote it very quickly. Um well, I guess maybe quickly for a novel. Um I wrote it in uh, about seven months, um, but I was in between teaching jobs, and I, I really, it was like intense. You know, I probably wrote at least twelve hours a day, um, every day. It was before I had kids, <laughs> so that made a big difference. Um, and I was sort of captivated by this idea, um, uh, by this character, the main character of Hal named Celia. Um, and she had just become so clear to me and I had to write this part of her story down. Um, and the story is about a young girl who's uh, named Celia, who's 11. And she is, she grew up in Brooklyn. She's African-American. Um, her parents are both from Jamaica uh, and they moved to Brooklyn when she was a young girl or sorry, before she was born. And then she grew up in Brooklyn um, and she has a younger brother who was her best friend. Um, and this story takes place months uh, after he has disappeared. Um, and like many books for young children, you know, there's there's sort of a quest um, where she, for the first summer, is not going back to Jamaica to be with her grandmother, um, but her parents are actually sending her to summer camp upstate in New York. Um, because they want her closer by, and they also want her to um, meet more kids her own age. And so it is this experience that she has in summer camp where on the first night, um, she's planning on running away and getting back to the city to continue her search for her brother. Um, But instead, um, she crashes her bike and discovers that she can actually uh, talk to animals. And so there is this sort of magical element, very magical element to this story where all, you know, all other realistic rules of the world apply except for the fact that she can talk to animals. Um, and she goes on these adventures. She begins going on these adventures um, with a fox that she befriends named Tippet. And um, the animals are trying to help her find her brother. And she is slowly um, discovering and realizing and coming to terms with, you know, the reality of everything that's recently happened to her and her family. Um, And she befriends another human friend named Violet, who's sort of like this quirky kid who she meets there. Um, They're both sort of fish out of water because this camp has the girls, the other campers at this camp have been there for years and years. And she and this other girl, Violet, are sort of newbies. And so they first connect on that level. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, I might just read a quick part of the book. Would that be good? Or Sure, sure. Yes, we have time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Celia has just sort of this part that I'm going to read is coming from the second chapter. So it's very early on. 
Um, but Celia's just arrived at the camp um, and they've just had sort of like their first small meet and greet meeting with all the girls their age. And she mentioned that her name, Celia, is the same letters as Alice, just in a new order. Um, and that her mother's favorite book for children is Alice in Wonderland. And that her mother had decided to take the letters from Alice and rearrange them into Celia. And that's why she's named Celia. Um, so she had just shared that with the group. Um, Okay. Um, and then the other important thing to know was that Celia, during this time, had also noticed for the first time these very mysterious and creepy yellow golden eyes sort of peering out of this tall grass. Um, and so she she sort of did a double take and they were gone. And so she's wondering, you know, is she she's starting to crack up and lose it? Or is there is, you know, what were those mysterious golden eyes staring at her from from the edge of the meadow. Just to remind listeners, this is the Truth to Power show. We're talking to Micah Hales, who's reading from Howl, a middle school reader. Um, and we're here with Bruce Whitaker as well. Thanks so much. So let's listen to Howl. Thank you. Okay. Um, Sorry, I elbowed you, Celia said. It was an accident. It's okay, the girl said. I'll probably only be crippled for a short while. There was a brief moment of silence. Then she burst out laughing at her own joke. Her laugh made Celia think of a flash of tinsel catching the sunlight from a gray winter sidewalk. There was a sharp crispness wrapped in sadness that Celia understood. My name is Violet, the girl said. I'm Celia. I know, Violet said. I was listening at the gather round, unlike you. Oh, sorry, said Celia. It's all right. I'm not your teacher or anything. I was just wondering, what were you thinking about? That's all. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. Just being spacey, I guess. She faked her most convincing smile. Actually, she knew exactly what she had been thinking about. Her plans for running away that night, finding Kyle, her brother, and wondering if she had finally cracked up seeing things. Those golden yellow eyes. Your face looked pretty serious, Violet said. Then she made a super serious face. She crinkled her lips into a scowl and scrunched her eyebrows down so that they made tiny wrinkles on her forehead. Celia cracked a smile. Violet stopped making the face and smiled back. It's nice to see the sun finally come out, Violet said, referring to Celia's smile. Yeah, I guess, Celia said. She twisted her fingers into her Dodgers sweatshirt and pulled the material taut. By the way, Violet added, I'm the one who asked you why your mom didn't just name you Alice. Celia raised her eyebrow, but didn't say anything. Violet continued, I wasn't trying to embarrass you or anything. It's just that I'm interested why people get their names. Take my name, for example. Some people think that I was named after the precious, delicate, dainty flower, Violet. She did a little princess curtsy here, but it's not true. I wasn't. Violet took something out of the neck of her t-shirt and held it up to the sky like she was a superhero holding the key to the universe. Then she brought it back down to Celia's eye level so she could see it. It was a small plastic prism threaded on a thin leather cord. The prism caught the setting rays of the sun and threw tiny rainbows across Celia's arms and face. 
Violet held the prism very still, then pointed to one of the rainbows. My father was a carpenter. Was? Was, confirmed Violet. Unemployed? Dead. Oh, Celia said in a flat tone. She felt an instant tightening in her jaw as she took a quick, shallow breath. Sorry, she added. Well, Violet continued, he was a carpenter by trade, but a physicist at heart. He was obsessed with everything there was to know about physics and light. My parents named me after ultraviolet rays. Ultraviolet wavelengths are shorter than visible light, but they are very powerful. They can disinfect water to make it safe for drinking or mutate your cells and kill you with cancer. For good or for bad, they're super powerful. Our world wouldn't be the same without them. She pointed to the colorless place next to Violet on the rainbow and said, if we could see them, they would be right here on the rainbow. But you can't, they're just beyond the visible spectrum. Celia looked into Violet's crystal blue eyes. They flashed again with defiant curiosity. So the reason for my name tells you something about me. Powerful ultraviolet rays, not some pitiful flower. So that's Violet and Celia meeting for the first time. Um, and from there, they Celia starts going on these adventures, and Violet eventually kind of gets wrapped up into them as well. Great, great, thank you. And it's nice. it's, it's yeah. really beautiful to hear how we you weld in science and weld in the uh, blend in kind of this childlike fascination and identity and how they identify with the scientific perspective rather than kind of conventional uh, romanticism and all this kind of thing and how that, that you romanticize science in a way that in that section that kind of is attractive to students to be able to empower themselves with that um, knowledge yeah yeah, I think it comes through. I think it comes through uh, throughout the book, yeah. woven through. Yeah. Good, good. And Bruce, I was just going to say it reminds me that uh, the the truism that one of the key ingredients of children's literature is uh, is the the macabre and the uh, the the horrible in some way that that uh, you know to acquaint them with the realities of life or whatever. But I think mm -hmm. to catch their interest as well. Um, yeah, and, taboo uh, topics are something that kids love to um, yeah, hear yeah, little no, glimpses uh, of with the death and all this mm -hmm. kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, but to, the humanity of you, all of this science and uh, heritage and naming are all wrapped up in the humanity of mm -hmm. two little girls coping with a world of loss. It's, it's yeah. really compelling. Yeah, and I do think, I think it's, you know, it, it's, I'm... I'm grateful that you say it's compelling. Um, I, I also think it's compelling and essential because kids are dealing with the macabre. Mm. You know, the world is macabre in a lot of ways. And in many ways that children have to experience and, and you know, oftentimes we say that children are not quite yet equipped to deal with something. But the truth is, is that a lot of times we as adults aren't yet equipped to communicate with children about certain things mm. i mean kids are survivors yeah. they yeah. are so adaptable and so resilient and they deal with things that adults have trouble dealing with and yeah. then we ha we have the struggle of dealing it with ourselves and then trying to 
you know, as we imagine, help children deal with them. And so it, I'm always surprised and shocked by, you know, in some regards, how um, matter of fact or, uh, you know, children can be with some of the most difficult topics. Mm. Um, and in some ways are, are more accepting and more understanding um, than adults are. And so, you know, this book, I think, speaks to that um, as I was writing it and as I was, you know, creating these characters or imagining these characters, I was definitely coming from that point of view of um, just how sort of blunt and upfront young kids can be about difficult topics. And in the same, you know, the same time, how these magical realities can be created to help them deal with it. How do you see students uh, now this fall particularly reacting to the COVID situation and um, how are their coping skills? Are they doing better than we are? I'm sure it's uh, <laughs> a range of responses. And But, you know, this is kind of like if I imagine myself being a small child going through this, this is like one of your apocalyptic nightmares come true for them yeah. as well as for us. It's starting to be fuel for some future uh, novels, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, you know, it's, I think the reaction is as diverse as each kid's, you know, brain, um, and heart. And, but overall, I do think that it really depends very heavily on the age range. Um, and there's a huge difference even between, you know, 10 and 14 year olds. Um, I think that, um, younger kids, well, all children, you know, are just craving socialization um, in a in a way that's so vital to their development, um, with their brain development and their social development. Um, and so, uh, you know, and Zoom does not cut it for them, not even like one tiny bit. You know, when in March and April, when things were really bad, you know, at the end of the day, my husband and I could grab a glass of wine and Zoom with our best friends and just, you know, from 9 to 11 p.m. just talk it out and you know um, my daughters couldn't do that and a lot of younger kids can't do that either um so i think the isolation in the beginning was pretty heavy on young kids Mm. um Mm. in a way that it wasn't necessarily as heavy for adults with technology um and but i do think there's a resilience i mean i think very young kids um, are very used to wearing masks and don't seem to care that much about it. They're happy to be back in school and just to be around other, other people their age. Um, I think, you know, a middle school student and a teenager are also having very different experiences. You know, if you're a sophomore in high school, that's very different than if this is your senior year of high school. Mm. Um, some kids are going to, you know, these, this COVID year or two years, whatever it will end up being, are some of you know pretty vital years in some kids lives that they won't be reliving so it's just going to leave a very different experience lasting experience for them Mm -hmm. Um, but all in all i think you know i really believe that kids are incredibly incredibly resilient um and so you know we see that too thank you that's encouraging (laughs) i think some of us need their juice (laughs) yeah thank you thank you as you start to wind down, I just need to do a couple of quick announcements. Um, 
Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to support and uh, promote uh, community and community voices. So if you um, are able to, please um, donate at radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, every little bit counts. Um, we definitely appreciate your support. It helps us stay on the air, helps Truth the Power stay on the air. So um, definitely do that. And also uh, the newsletter, if you want to keep up with uh, Radio for Brooklyn events and, and programming, uh, go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. We recently had uh, a major event, uh, public display of the Wall of Lies, 20,000 uh, lies that uh, Donald Trump told over his administration, was put up as a mural uh, in Bushwick. And then uh, some people came and defaced it, saying uh, things like stand back and stand by, uh, vote Trump or die. And then subsequently, some people came over and raced over that and put down. So it's been uh, uh, put down uh, things like, um, you know, love thy neighbor and... Uh, and, uh, and this kind of thing. Um, so definitely, you know, if you want to also support the rebuilding of the wall uh, of lies, um, definitely consider donating to our GoFundMe. Uh, so go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash wall of lies, I believe. I'm not sure. But anyway, you can just Google it. Uh, also on Facebook, it's been trending with uh, uh, various articles about the, the wall of lies. So, um, yeah, so definitely support uh, ready for Brooklyn if you can and any closing thoughts from you guys any last uh, last thoughts as we start to go out well, I just want to make sure listeners know that Mike has created a uh, school experience around Howl and maybe you might talk about that and also make sure we know how to get to you Mike yeah. through your website yeah. and things <clears throat> sure so um, yeah as a teacher I've created um, lesson plans material book club questions um, for Howl, which is available to download from my website uh, for free. Um, my website is micahales.com. Uh, and so it's M-I-C-A-H-H-A-L-E-S.com. Um, I also love to do, especially now in the time of Zoom, free um, school visits. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, can be contacted through my website. Um, for that. Um, I also, you can buy Howl on Amazon or anywhere your local independent bookstore um, can order it for you. And I recommend supporting them, especially in this time. Um, so yeah, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, and yeah, the, the educational material is great. I've been to, to schools that are using it and um, it's, it's, you know, produce some really rich, lovely student discussion um, mm. that I enjoyed being privileged to to be able to just sit back and listen. Lovely. That's lovely, wonderful. Lovely. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks it's so much. It's been really great talking to you. Good luck with everything. Thank, Thank you. you very much. It's been really lovely. And thanks for having me on. Thank you. Every Monday at 8 a.m., uh, Truth to Power show airs, and you can find our archives at readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Have a good day. Thank Yay. you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye. Take care.